Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. This is a podcast about finding the humanity behind the horror. And this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Black Dahlia. Smile more. Men love saying that to women, don't they? In the city of dreams, Los Angeles, California, in January 1947, a young and beautiful 22-year-old woman named Elizabeth Short sometimes called the Black Dahlia, met an unknown man or men who altered her face so she would be forced to smile forever in death. James Elroy, author of the novel The Black Dahlia, which fictionalizes the life and murder of Elizabeth Short, says of the crime, quote, It is the most stunning explication of misogynistic violence. Like the women who died in Whitechapel at the hands of Jack the Ripper in 1888, 59 years earlier, Elizabeth Short's gruesome death has overshadowed who she was in life. Like Martha Tabram, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly before her, Elizabeth Short has been turned into nothing more than a victim, a corpse, a woman who was barely surviving in the margins of society and perhaps deserved what she got. Not here. That narrative of lies, the modern myth of the Black Dahlia, does not contain the truth of her. This is more than an unsolved mystery. This is the story of the life of Elizabeth Short, a woman whose American dream turned into a nightmare. This is the truth, as much as is known. I dedicate this episode of Going Dark Theater to the memory of Elizabeth Short and to her surviving family members who are still waiting for justice 73 years later.
Elizabeth Short was born on July 29, 1924, in Boston, Massachusetts, the daughter of Cleo and Phoebe Short. Cleo and Phoebe had five daughters within eight years. First came Virginia and Dorothea, then Elizabeth. After her, Eleonora and Muriel Short were born. Contrary to what the recently released FBI files say, Elizabeth Short had no middle name. In childhood, she was known as Betty. In adulthood, she would often be known as Beth. Her father, Cleo Short, had a lucrative job building miniature golf courses. The Short family moved to Medford, Massachusetts, a quiet suburb northwest of Boston on the Mystic River in 1927, when Elizabeth was three years old. And that is the town where she grew up. In 1929, the stock market crashed and America entered the Great Depression. One year later, in 1930, when Elizabeth Short was only six years old, her father Cleo vanished. He had lost his job and the family had become nearly broke. Cleo Short's car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge and it was assumed that he, like so many others, had committed suicide because he was no longer able to provide for his family during the Great Depression. After this, Phoebe Short worked as a bookkeeper in order to provide for herself and her five growing daughters. They moved from their house to a small, cramped apartment, all that their now widowed, hard-working mother was able to afford. Elizabeth Short was plagued with health problems during her childhood. Her asthma was severe, and she also contracted bronchitis and eventually childhood tuberculosis. In 1939, when she was only 15 years old, Elizabeth Short had surgery to remove fluid from her right lung to save her life. She retained a scar on her back from that operation for the rest of her days. Because of her many health issues, Elizabeth Short missed a lot of school. On doctor's orders, Phoebe Short sent Elizabeth to, move, to live with family friends in the warmer climate of Florida during the winter months. The rest of the year, she spent with her mother and four sisters in Medford, Massachusetts. This made her education difficult. After once being a good student, she earned grades of C's and D's in her freshman year of high school in 1940. And then, 16-year-old Elizabeth Short dropped out of high school for good. 
Two people who were friends with Elizabeth Short during her adolescence were Mary and Bob Passios. Mary Passios was a young child when the Short family moved into the neighborhood and said of Elizabeth, quote, She was just very nice. She started taking me for walks and to the movies. When I grew up, I was going to be just like her. She liked attention. When she walked down the street, people would notice her. Mary's older brother, Bob Passios, has also spoken of Elizabeth Short. Quote, She had an unusual walk. It was almost a mincing type thing. I think she could have balanced a book on her head. She glided. She walked like a model on the runway. She knew I was bashful and liked to see my face turn crimson. She would say, we ought to go out dancing together. But she was a nice girl. She was by far the prettiest of the five sisters. Elizabeth Short's mother, Phoebe, said that her daughter had big dreams. Quote, She was a very affectionate, sweet girl, and if she was out at night, she always stopped in my bedroom to talk, and she would talk and talk and tell everything that she had done and everything. Elizabeth always wanted to be an actress. She was ambitious and beautiful and full of life, but she had her moments of despondency. Sometimes she would be gay and carefree one moment, then in the depths of despair another. In 1942, when Elizabeth was 18 years old, the Short family received a shattering bombshell. Phoebe Short received a letter from her husband, Cleo, whom everyone thought had committed suicide 12 years earlier in 1930. Cleo apologized to Phoebe and to his children for what he had done to them. Overwhelmed by the Great Depression and feeling he was unable to care for his family, Cleo Short had faked his death and moved to California to start a new life. Cleo Short sent his daughter Elizabeth $200, perhaps out of guilt, and she decided she wanted to reconnect with the father who had abandoned her when she was only six years old. Elizabeth Short moved in with her father in Vallejo, California in December 1942. But the two of them did not get along. Cleo Short later recalled, quote, she came out here and we set up housekeeping, but she wouldn't stay home. She was always running around when she was supposed to be keeping house for me. I made her leave. In January 1943, I told her to go her way. I'd go mine. 
I didn't want anything to do with her or any of the rest of the family then. I was through. What a guy. After being kicked out by her absentee father, Elizabeth Short stayed with friends in Lompoc, California. Needing to find a way to earn money, she applied for a sales job at the Army Base Exchange at Camp Cook on January 29, 1943. Elizabeth told the manager that she was desperate for work and that she had to come to California because of her fragile health. She was hired and eventually was named Camp Cook Cutie by the servicemen who frequented the base. In her childhood, everyone always called Elizabeth Betty. By the time she worked at Camp Cook, she preferred to be known as Beth. The manager of Camp Cook, Inez Keeling, later said of Beth Short, quote, I was won over all at once by her almost childlike charm and beauty, by her innocence. She was one of the loveliest girls I have ever seen and the most shy. Beth Short only worked at Camp Cook for a short time. She moved on to the town of Santa Barbara, and it was here she ran into trouble for the first time. On September 23, 1943, Beth Short was arrested in a bar for underage drinking. Her mugshot was taken, and she was also fingerprinted by the police. The officer who arrested Beth Short, Mary Unkefer, then befriended Beth, allowing her to stay at Mary's home for nine days while the juvenile court decided what to do with her. Mary Unkefer said of Short, quote, She was very good-looking, with beautiful hair, dark hair, and fair skin. She dressed nicely and was a long way from being a barfly. She had a rose tattooed on her left leg. She loved to sit so that it would show. The juvenile court sent Beth Short back to her mother's home in Medford, Massachusetts, but she did not stay there long. Instead, Beth decided to go to Florida, where she spent the summer months when she was growing up. She moved to Miami Beach and got a job as a waitress at Big Dave's Rosedale Delicatessen and Restaurant and rented a small room at the El Mar apartment building half a mile away from her work. It was during this time that Beth Short received an enigmatic telegram from Washington, D.C. that has never been explained. The telegram read, A promise is a promise to a person of the world. Yours. 
The sender's identity remains unknown. Records show that in March 1944, Beth Short was living in Atlanta, Georgia, but she returned to Miami Beach the following month. She returned home to Medford to celebrate Thanksgiving with her family, and on December 31st, 1944, New Year's Eve, Beth Short met Major Matthew Michael Gordon in Florida. She fell in love with the dashing Air Force pilot and wrote him letters constantly as their romance bloomed throughout 1945. Gordon told his mother that Beth had once written him 27 letters in 11 days. Matthew Gordon then was stationed in India, and Beth Short was at first horrified when she heard he had been injured in a plane crash. But, while recovering from his injuries, Gordon reportedly wrote to Beth and asked her to marry him when he returned to the United States. One of Beth Short's letters to Matthew Gordon read, quote, My sweetheart, I love you, I love you, I love, sweetheart of all my dreams. Another said, Darling, I'm so proud that I'm afraid I'm going to cry. Forgive me, please. I didn't plan to cry at all. I simply can't help myself. And when you come home, I'm never going to let you go. Darling, I'm not trying to frighten you, really. I just love you so. And it's real love because I haven't had you out of my thoughts since we met. I know our love will last. On August 10th, 1945, one day before he was to return home to America, and less than a week before the surrender of Japan ended World War II, Major Matthew Gordon's plane crashed for a second time. This time, he was killed. He was only 26 years old. Matthew Gordon's mother sent Beth Short a brief telegram. Quote, just received word from War Department that Matt was killed in plane crash on way home from India. Our deepest sympathy is with you. Pray it isn't true. But it was true. In many ways, Beth Short never recovered from the loss of him. He was the love of her life, and Matthew Gordon's tragic death plunged her into grief. Afterwards, 
Beth Short would tell many people that she was a widow. In February 1946, Beth Short visited her family in Medford, Massachusetts for what would end up being the last time. On April 17, 1946, she moved back to California, dividing her time between Hollywood and Long Beach. She was a striking figure, always dressed in black clothing, often putting flowers in her black hair and wearing red lipstick and nail polish, although she was known to often bite her nails. A childhood habit she just couldn't break. Beth Short projected a glamorous image on the surface, but without steady employment and with no access to medical care, Beth Short's teeth began to rot badly by the time she was 21 years old. Cheryl Hoagland, one of several women Short shared hotel rooms with when she could afford one, said, quote, Beth would take a candle and melt it. Then she'd drop the hot wax into the cavities of her teeth. This would remove all the dark tops of her teeth. While in Long Beach, Beth Short often frequented the lunch counter at a drugstore owned by Arnold Landers. It was here that she was given the nickname that would eventually eclipse her real name, the Black Dahlia. Landers said, quote, She'd come into our drugstore frequently. She'd usually wear a two-piece beach costume which left her midriff bare, or she'd wear the black lacy things. Her hair was jet black and she liked to wear it high. She was popular with the men who came in here, and they got to calling her the Black Dahlia. Sometimes... Beth Short would be virtually homeless, sleeping in all-night movie theaters because she had nowhere else to rest, nowhere else to go. Anne Toth, another one of Short's many roommates who lived with her briefly at the home of a nightclub owner named Mark Hansen, later said of her during this time, quote, Betty could not stand up to trouble, and she was always in hot water. However, we used to think the world of that kid. She was always well-behaved and sweet when I knew her. She was always skeptical of people, but she still stumbled into trash. Mark Hansen, the nightclub owner, is one example of the kind of trash Beth Short sometimes found herself involved with. Interviewed about Beth Short in 1971, Mark Hansen said the following, quote, 
She didn't seem to have any goals or standards. She never had a job all the time she lived in Los Angeles. She had an obviously low IQ, lived hand to mouth day to day. She was average looking. Her teeth were bad. She was a man-crazy tramp, but she wasn't a prostitute. There were all kinds of men in her life, but we were only able to find three who had any sexual experience with her. She was a tease. She gave a bad time to quite a few guys. She just asked for trouble. Ah, yes. Because she wouldn't put out for every man who bought her dinner or took her out dancing, she was a tramp, a tease who was asking for what would eventually happen to her. Where have we heard that before? The difference in how men speak about Elizabeth Short and how the women who knew her do is striking and infuriating. It echoes again how the women killed by the Whitechapel murderer were spoken about and vilified, showing very little had changed since 1888 and not enough has changed since 1947. Anne Toth defended the memory of Beth Short, quote, In the first place, she didn't drink, and she didn't smoke, because after all, living with her, I knew, and she always came in at a decent hour, eleven o'clock or around there, she never came in later than that, and naturally, if she was supposed to be sexy and do other stuff, there's a lot more that goes into it, rather than if a decent girl... There is drinking, smoking, whining, and dining, and a few other things that go with it. I don't think she was trying to be sexy in a very innocent way. Dorothy French, an usher who discovered Beth Short sleeping in a 24-hour movie theater and then took her home to live with her during the holiday season of December 1946, had haunting memories of Beth Short. Dorothy French said, quote, there was always something so sorrowful about her. This is a letter written by Beth Short on December 13th, 1946, a month before her death, addressed to an on-and-off-again boyfriend named Gordon Flickling. She never sent it. These are Beth Short's own words. Honey, today has been quite busy for me. However, I always find time to let you know that my thoughts are of you. 
I have just made a chocolate cake and topped it off with white fudge frosting. I also added chopped nuts and coconut. Everyone approved because it is nearly gone now. I made hot coffee and it all tasted good. As I wrote, I am spending the holidays with my girlfriend whom I worked with in Hollywood. Her mother has a home here in San Diego. She and I feel the same about Hollywood. I couldn't bear to be alone during the holidays, so she and I are spending it with her mother. We all get along fine, and I am happy for now. I want to go to Florida in the new year and stay there. I've lost a great deal of work here, and when I was able to work, I had to pay a great deal for medicine and doctor bills, rather discouraging, I should say. Three exclamation points. I honestly did believe that I would be well here in the West. Time has proved differently to me. I had hoped that we would be together by this time this year. It isn't possible, but I do hope that you find a nice young lady to kiss at midnight New Year's. It would have been wonderful if we could, if we belonged to each other now. Most sweethearts celebrate together on New Year's Eve. I so wish it could have been different for us. I want the kind of happiness everyone else has. I'm working for now, and I'll plan something else later. I am so unsettled and discouraged. Perhaps Matt was my man. That is why I've been so miserable. I'll never regret coming west to see you. You didn't take me in your arms and keep me there. However, it was nice as long as it lasted. You had a great deal on your mind, and I was just an extra burden. I'll never be settled unless I find my own happiness, as everyone else does, with the man they love. Perhaps there is someone now, because I've never been able to call you all mine. I've just about made my mind up to forget you and try and be happy some other way. I'm miserable because you are not around, yet I know you never will be. Why go on? For if I let myself... I am sure that I could find someone else and love them. I'm human, dear. So much so. But you can't understand it. I want someone all for myself. Don't you? I'll close for now and have a nice holiday and be happier than I am always.
Betty. A week before Christmas, Beth Short met a 25-year-old salesman named Robert Manley, nicknamed Red, due to his hair. Manley was driving his car when he noticed Beth Short standing on a corner. Quote, I asked her if she wanted a ride. She turned her head and wouldn't look at me. Finally, she turned around and asked me if I didn't think it was wrong to ask a girl on a corner to get into my car. I said, yes, but I'd like to take you home. So she got into the car. Beth Short and Red Manley went out on dates for the next four nights. They kissed, but that was as far as their relationship went. Manly was married, and his wife had just given birth to their first child. Robert Red Manley later said about his time with Elizabeth Short, quote, I was testing my faith to my wife. As the year turned into 1947, Dorothy French's mother asked Beth Short to leave. On January 9th, 1947, Beth Short called Red Manley and asked him to pick her up from Dorothy French's home. He did and drove Beth to a bus station where she checked her two suitcases, which contained everything she owned. All she had were the clothes on her back and her purse. Beth said she was going to visit her sister, Virginia, and asked Red if he could drive her to the Biltmore Hotel. Red Manley dropped Beth off at the hotel and then went home to his wife and infant child. Staff at the Biltmore Hotel remembered seeing Beth Short in the lobby on the night of January 9th, 1947. She was using the telephone. And then Beth Short, the Black Dahlia, disappeared into the darkness of the city of dreams. This is the story told by a woman named Betty Bursinger in her own words. I was walking with my little three-year-old daughter, Anne, at about 10.45 a.m. the morning of January 15, 1947. We were going north on Norton Avenue to the Limert Park section, where I was going to have Anne's shoes repaired. 
As we passed that vacant lot between 39th Street and Coliseum Avenue, I saw the body about a foot or two from the sidewalk. It was lying face up and I could see it was cut in two. I was so shocked and scared and so worried my little girl would see it that I gathered her up in my arms and ran to the nearest house. It was a doctor's, I think. After asking to use the phone, I telephoned the police. I don't recall whether I told the policeman with whom I talked that the body was cut in two, and I'm sure I didn't say whether it was a man or woman, but I told him exactly where it was and said there was a body there. My little girl didn't see the body. I made sure she wouldn't. I'm glad she didn't. Photographs of the body are easy to find on the internet. As always, I advise caution in seeking them out. You cannot unsee them. The next part of this tale contains a description of the body. It is necessary to include as part of the truth but I understand if you want to fast forward a bit. At first, Betty Bursinger thought the body was a discarded mannequin because it was so white. When police arrived, they found the corpse of a young woman. She was naked and she had been cut in two, severed in half at the waist. Her body had been placed on its back, the two halves one foot apart from one another, posed with her legs spread wide open and her arms lifted over her head. Her head and face had been beaten, and the killer had slashed her face from the corners of her lips to her ears, creating a chilling Glasgow smile. Her intestines had been folded neatly under her buttocks. Her eyes were open. One of the first policemen at the crime scene closed them. An autopsy revealed that she had died from loss of blood from the cuts to her face and shock from the heavy blows to her head. After death, her body had been severed using a rare surgical procedure taught in the 1930s known as a hemicorporectomy where the spine is cut between the second and third vertebrae, the only way to bisect a human body without cutting through bone. Then she had been drained of blood and her body meticulously washed by the killer. The flesh 
where the tattoo of a rose had been on her left thigh was removed with a knife and found rolled up inside of her vagina. There are other details about her corpse that have still never been made public, in the hopes that one day they can be used to identify her murderer. Ligature marks were found on her neck, ankles, and wrists. Whether these were from before her death or after to aid in the draining of blood from her body or both, is not known. Her body was fingerprinted, and the prints were sent to the FBI to aid in her identification. The FBI got a hit. Because of her arrest for underage drinking in 1943, Elizabeth Short was identified. A newspaper the Los Angeles Herald Examiner learned of this and called Elizabeth Short's mother Phoebe before the police did. A reporter called Phoebe Short and told her that her daughter Elizabeth had won a beauty contest. After Phoebe had told the reporter all the details of her daughter's life, the reporter put his hand over the phone and asked his boss, Now what do I tell her? The boss said, Now tell her. Then Phoebe Short learned her daughter was actually dead. The Los Angeles Herald Examiner paid for Phoebe Short's flight to California in exchange for an exclusive interview, of course. For two days, she refused requests to identify her daughter's body, wanting to remember her as she had looked alive. Beth Short's absentee father, Cleo, also refused to identify the body and would later not attend his daughter's funeral, saying, quote, I don't want anything to do with this. Phoebe Short eventually relented and made the identification. It was not easy. Her daughter's face was so changed from the killer's savage blows, but it was her. Elizabeth Short was only 22 years old when she was brutally murdered, on the verge of starting a new life and trying to claim her own happiness. She did not deserve to die. She was not asking for it. She also does not deserve all the lies that have been perpetuated about her life in the years following her death. She is more than a famous, grotesquely mutilated corpse. She was a human being with so many people who loved her.
She was a person who mattered. The murder of Elizabeth Short was front-page news in all the papers for 35 days in a row. At first, the press called it the Werewolf Murder, but then they found the nickname the Black Dahlia, and the rest is history. On January 21st, 1947, a man with a soft and silky voice called the editor of the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, saying that he was the murderer of Elizabeth Short. He complimented the paper on their coverage of the case, and said he would eventually turn himself in and that they should soon, quote, expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. On January 24, 1947, a large manila envelope was received by the newspaper, soaked in gasoline to remove any fingerprints. The killer had cut out words from various newspapers and glued them to the envelope, spelling out the words, Here is Dahlia's belongings. Inside the envelope were the contents of Elizabeth Short's purse, her birth certificate, business cards, letters she had written but never sent, wrapped in ribbon, photographs, an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the cover with several pages torn out, and the newspaper article reporting the death of Major Matthew Gordon in 1945. The same day this envelope was received, a single black suede shoe and a black purse were found on top of a dumpster just two miles from where Elizabeth Short's body had been found. Robert Red Manley, the last person to see Beth alive, and initially the LAPD's prime suspect, identified both items as belonging to her. He identified the purse because it still smelled like the perfume she had always worn. There were no fingerprints. Red Manley was eventually completely cleared of her murder, but it haunted him for the rest of his life. He struggled with depression and was eventually committed to a mental institution by his wife Harriet in 1954. Robert Red Manley died of a reportedly accidental fall on January 9, 1986, 39 years to the day when he had last seen Elizabeth Short alive at the Biltmore Hotel. On January 26, 1947, the killer of Elizabeth Short sent another letter 
to the papers, this time handwritten. It said, here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m., had my fun at police. Black Dahlia, Avenger. At 10 o'clock a.m. on January 29th, 1947, no one turned themselves in. At 1 o'clock p.m. that same day, another gasoline-soaked cut-and-paste letter was received by the Los Angeles Herald Examiner saying, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. Don't try to find me. After this, the person who murdered Elizabeth Short went silent. The media lost interest and moved on, and finally the case went cold. LAPD Sergeant Finnis Brown put it this way, quote, No lead had any conclusions. Once we'd find something, it seemed to disappear in front of our eyes. Elizabeth Short is buried in California's Mountain View Cemetery. Her modest gravestone lists her name, her date of birth and death, and the word daughter. After all her remaining daughters had grown up and married, grieving mother Phoebe Short moved from Medford, Massachusetts to Oakland, California, so she could be near her dead daughter's grave. When asked for an interview later in life, Phoebe Short replied to the reporter, sobbing, There's nothing you can do. All the publicity in the world won't bring my daughter back. Phoebe Short died in 1992 at the age of 94. The first question most people focus on when telling the tale of Elizabeth Short is always, who killed her? The more important, much less frequently asked question is, who was she? It is that question. I have tried my best to answer from the facts that are known. The murder of Elizabeth Short is still an active investigation by the LAPD. The case has never been closed or definitively solved. There are several compelling suspects, but none of them have ever been charged with the crime, and it is likely that the killer is now also dead. I encourage you to do more research if you want to know more about those men. 
their names are not the ones I wish to give breath to. The house where Elizabeth Short grew up in Medford, Massachusetts, no longer exists. But in 1993, a plaque was placed on a large rock near its site, honoring the memory of Elizabeth Short, the woman known all over the world as the Black Dahlia. In one of those strange twists of fate you couldn't possibly make up. The drugstore where Elizabeth Short was given her immortal nickname, the Black Dahlia, still exists today. It is now a flower shop. Next time we meet, I will continue this season of unsolved mysteries as we travel to the mountains of Russia in 1959 to examine the tale of the Dyatlov Pass. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theatre on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky projects I'm writing, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash joshhitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater, where we seek to find the humanity behind the horror. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now...